Yes, I got it. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for uh, the opportunity to do this. It's been a benefit and a blessing to me in my own study of the Bible. And um, just even with this particular job of talking about application, um, I wanted to just kind of get through it quickly and step down. Then I started to look into it. And the uh, Lord really started to convict my own heart about this being an area lately that I have not worked hard enough at. Um, and that is making sure I apply what I'm reading from my Bible to my life. Uh, a lot of times we're caught up in the beauty of God's word as we read it and as we're interpreting it. And that can be a very enjoyable thing, can it? Just to have your Bible on your lap, maybe a cup of coffee by your side, and to be reading God's word and seeing the beauty of it. And we can sometimes just be content with that, <laughs> that we understood it, that we uh, are able to see some things and remember some things. But this third step of inductive Bible study, the step of application, is really critical. It's really what it's all about. And I just want to say before I get into this tonight, uh, as I reviewed my notes a little bit, I was looking at a potential error in, in understanding this. This has been kind of like a self-help thing and uh, how to do a Bible study, right? <laughs> well, so you got to do your observation and you got to do your uh, interpretation. You have to do your application. And if you do all these things, right, that God's going to bring about changes in your life. And it's really not about your methodology, right? It's not about following somebody's prescribed method and that our faith is in that. We all understand, I trust, that when we read the Word of God, we have that unique experience of having, as a believer, the author inside of us, illuminating it to us and causing it to be uh, the Word of God, power of God that is alive and is sharp and active in our lives, bringing about transformation. So some of these tips are then just perhaps a way that magnifies or amplifies what the Word of God will do in our lives because we're going to be giving it better attention, right? Jesus did teach his disciples how to pray. Uh, you would assume that those who had followed him and had seen him pray would understand how to pray. But Jesus had a, a clear teaching to them about how to go about that. And I trust that what we're doing tonight by looking at how to read your Bible, how to apply Bible reading, will be something that will just be used um, by the Holy Spirit as we open our Bibles and as we, we have a part in the partnership, right, with the Spirit of God. And that's an amazing thing. So don't want to make it like a self-help thing. These are the steps you follow, <laughs> and you're guaranteed to get good results, right? That's not it at all. I just want to start by um, drawing your attention to the outline. We're on the third step of inductive Bible study, and that is application. The first blank that you have here uh, is a reminder. Inductive Bible study is not just for information, but for transformation. For transformation. Just going to read the intro for you. The dictionary defines application as the act of putting to use or putting into operation, especially for some practical purpose. In Bible study, application is putting truth you've discovered 
often through observation and interpretation, to use in your life with the ultimate goal of transformation or life change. Bible study is not merely meant to inform, but to transform and to renew our minds. Romans 12.2 tells us that. Application answers the question, how does the truth of this passage apply to my life? Note that the question is not, is this truth relevant to my life? The truth of God's word is always relevant to our lives. The more honest question is, am I ready and willing to believe this truth and to apply it in my life? <coughs> Application, often the most neglected, yet the most needed stage in our Bible studies, too often begins and ends in the wrong place with interpretation. That's a confusing sentence, sorry. <laughs> our Bible studies often begin and end in the wrong place with interpretation. The goal of Bible study is not simply to determine what it says and what it means, but in the final analysis, to apply it to one's life. You know, we ought to be aware that there are some dangers here of being those that like to read the book, like to study God's book, God's word. There are many uh, examples that we can see of people who love God's book or seem to love to study it and yet don't effectively or act, uh, rightly apply it, right? We can think of the Jewish religious leaders. That's a blank that we have there for you as well. The Jewish religious leaders of Jesus' day. Pharisees were experts in the book. Lawyers and scribes, they knew the scriptures inside and out, but rejected the one that the scriptures are all about. Jesus told them that in John chapter 5, verse 39. They were also wrong in their application of the Sabbath. A lot of things about the Sabbath. They, they knew, but they applied it wrong. And uh, about forgiveness of sin, remember what Jesus said about the Pharisee who was repenting of his sin? He didn't really understand what it is to repent of sin, to seek God's pardon. So we, we need to be aware of that. Uh, the, the Jewish religious leaders are an example of those who know the book, love the book, but weren't applying it in their lives. Uh, the second warning that we have is of the believers, given to the believers. James chapter 1, verse 22 to 25. We're reminded here to be doers of the word, not hearers only. Boy, we like to hear it, don't we? Sometimes we might travel around and listen to our Christian radio. We love to hear certain preachers preaching. We like to listen to sermons. We like to read our Bibles and read books about the Bible. But in learning much and in hearing much, there's a danger if we're not applying it to our lives, right? We have to be careful not to deceive ourselves. We don't really know the Bible unless we obey the Bible. To profess great love for God's word or even to pose as a Bible student is a form of self-deception unless our increasing knowledge of the word is producing increasing likeness to the Lord Jesus might want to also consider some of the metaphors God uses to describe the Bible. The metaphors that we're going to look at here are tools, in every case, that expose flaws and provide guidance, which is what the Bible says it, of itself, right? In 2 Timothy 3.16, we're told that Scripture is profitable for teaching, for correction, find the exact passage here. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. 
And the tools that we're going to look at here are tools that do that. These are not tools that just provide knowledge for the sake of knowledge. They provide knowledge for the sake of correction and instruction and training, right? The first example is a mirror. Uh, the passage in James chapter 1, verse 23 says that uh, the man who comes to the Bible and looks at it and sees his natural face as in a mirror. It describes the word of God as a mirror. It exposes flaws. And if we walk away from that mirror without really addressing change, we're not being doers of the word. Uh, second, it's a living and active sword which penetrates deep within. You are all familiar, no doubt, with Hebrews chapter 4, 12 and 13. Describes the Bible as a surgical tool that lays open the in innards of our soul and our heart before the Lord. And just having that exposed and not dealing with it is not using the book as it's intended to. We need to also apply it. It is a lamp in Psalm 119, 105. That which lights our path and gives us guidance exposes the darkness. A lamp often does, right? So we need to deal with it. We need to know it's there. And it is also a cleansing agent. Psalm 119, how shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed to the law, right? So to foster better application, which is putting truth to the pavement of our lives, here are some questions that will help you, I think, in your own Bible study, help us with the Bible study we're doing here. And I will let you know a little secret. Um, the original acronym was not PACE STEPS. Not that love. That was my acronym, PACE STEPS. I had to change the original one because it was SPACE PETS. Space pets. <laughs> and I just thought, you know, that is just not fitting for what we're trying to accomplish here. So I had to rearrange a few things. But the idea of helping us in our walk, helping us as we put into practice what we're learning uh, from God's word, the idea of, of keeping pace and making good steps, I thought that might work better than space pets. So our, for our P here, is there a promise in the passage that I'm reading? Is there a promise to believe or a condition to meet in order to partake of the promise? You know, we need to lay hold of promises in Scripture when we read them. We need to pray those promises as we read them. What a wonderful tool for our prayers, right? And a prayer is a wonderful way to begin to apply the Scriptures to us. So is there a promise to believe? Secondly, is there an attitude to change or guard against? An attitude to change or guard against? A lot of times we see warnings about people who have the wrong attitude in Scripture. And um, we need to be aware of that. Maybe, and, and let the light of God's word expose, do I have that same attitude in my heart? Is that going on in my heart right now? Do I need to repent of that? Maybe the, an action I need to take, right? Letter C, is there a command to keep? The commands uh, are, it's easy to see one when you come across one, but often hard to follow, isn't it? Hard to apply it to our life. We really need to meditate on how I need to bring this into my life and meditate on why am I not? What's, what's the obstruction here? Is there a sin issue in my heart that I'm not following this command? E, is there, is there an example to follow? S, is there a sin to avoid? forsake or confess that this passage of scripture exposes to me? 
These are all tools I've trusted will help us as we think about a passage, think about different things that we can look for that we might be able to apply to our lives. Letter T, is there a truth about God or myself to memorize and meditate upon? So much of scripture gives us a, a clear picture of who God is, what his character is like, and how transformational that can be in our day-to-day -day experience if we just lay hold on the fact that God is merciful, right? That God is just. He's concerned with righteousness. Um, all these different characteristics about him that we can see in scripture. As we heard on Sunday about Jonah, God is merciful, right? And uh, just to be able to lay hold on that, to be merciful in our dealings with people, right? Because of what we see in our God. Um, is there a, an error to mark? An error? I'm on number seven, in case you're wondering where we are in the pace steps. <laughs> um, we had the privilege of, in chapel today of looking at 1 Samuel 21, when David was fleeing for his life from Saul and afraid, and <laughs> he went to Nob, went to the, the tabernacle there, and he started to lie to protect himself, right? Uh, and then he, and then uh, I forget the name of the Ahimelech, I think was in charge of the tabernacle. And David said, you have sword here? He said, you know, just Goliath's sword. <laughs> so he reminds David of God's using him in the past to have a great victory over a giant. Now he's running terrified of Saul, no doubt, a man to be afraid of, humanly speaking, but David was forgetting some things. David was making an error. And throughout that passage, it doesn't say that he called upon the name of the Lord, called God in to, help, to help him in this situation. So it was a great message that we heard, and it reminded me of this. Sometimes when we read a passage, there's an error like that that we need to know. We need to examine our own heart. Do I do the same thing? Is there a prayer, number eight, to pray or a priority to change? A prayer or a priority to change? And then number nine, is there something to thank or to praise God for? So I don't know that this will be an acronym that will be as helpful as Roy G. Biv in helping you to remember the colors of the spectrum of light or anything like that. I don't know if it's going to have lasting value, but I hope that some of these different ways of looking at scripture, looking to apply it to my life would be helpful. And we can at least try to implement some of these tonight as we look at the study of Mark. You can look at one, two, and three down below. Just tells you how to go a little bit deeper in your application to apply it to different spheres of your life, if you will. If, if these are in legitimate distinctions, my personal life, my family, right? To work, to my church, to my neighborhood, right? And uh, two and three as well. In view of this truth, what specific changes should I make in my life? And uh, discovering why or why not, why we're not maybe living that out. And number three, how do I propose to carry out these changes? We need to be specific. This takes time. This takes commitment. And the Lord wants to help us uh, succeed in this, right? The Spirit will help us because transformation is the end, uh, is what we are seeking after, is what He seeks for us, right? So application begins with belief, which results in being and doing. 
There is faith, which we apply to our observation and our interpretation, results in application, it results in our being and doing. There should never be a time when we go to the scriptures without allowing them to change our lives for the better. Greater knowledge should always bring about greater obedience. Enabled by grace, not law, empowered by the indwelling spirit as we learn to discard self-effort and depend on the spirit. All right, so Kyle's going to come now and uh, going to have us look at the passage in Mark. You'll see that you have the same questions on, in the handout that we had last time, and we're going to take times around our tables to answer those. Um, but before we do that, let's read the passage that we'll be in together tonight, and then I'll turn it over for 12 to 15 minutes around the tables, and then we'll come back together and um, look at the passage together. So let's read. We're in uh, Mark chapter 1, Mark chapter 1, verse 14, and we'll read down to verse 20. It's on page 8 of your Bible if you're using the scripture journal. Jesus begins his ministry. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee... He saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. So let's just take a little bit of time looking at these two new sections of narrative where Jesus is now coming out of the wilderness in his temptation. He begins his ministry in Galilee and then his calling of the first disciples. Try to get through as many of those questions as possible, um, including maybe working on a summary sentence for the passage um, that we can share together in just a few minutes. So get to work, um, and then we'll come back together in a few and talk through what we saw. All right, I hate to interrupt, but I do want to make sure that we have a chance to kind of look through this as a large group as well, and don't feel as if, all right, we're done, I can't talk about this with anybody else anymore. Take this home, refill everything out that you uh, maybe missed or some blanks, find the people at your table on a Sunday morning or in between Sunday school and the service or after the service or if they're in your life group, hey, what else were you able to find in this passage? That's what real fellow ship is, where we share what God is doing in and through us, through those means of grace that he's given us, and one of those things is his word. And I really appreciate Jeff's introduction, uh, talking about, without using that term, but the, the, how our Bible reading needs to be a means of grace. It's not a means to grace, because our Bible study can be as scientific as possible, and historically accurate, and contextually right. But without the Holy Spirit opening up our hearts and truly transforming us, we just gain knowledge. And, we, and, and John Piper puts it well. He, I, I'm not going to quote it exactly, but I don't want to semi-quote him and not give him um, his due. 
But he says those means of grace, they're like conduits. So there are things that God has commanded for his people to do. Read the word, pray, be in fellowship with his people, be committed to a local church. And through our obedience to those things, God finds pleasure in giving us his grace. We don't earn it. We put ourselves in a position to keep on getting God's grace as he finds joy in continuing to give us grace. It's as if walking into your house tonight and you flip on a switch to turn a light on or you turn a faucet on. You're not providing the electricity for the light. You're not providing the water out of the faucet but you're opening up a conduit through which those things can flow and, and, and light up your home and, and give you a refreshing drink. Same idea. Our Bible study should be seen as one of the ways through which God channels his grace. And isn't that something that he delights to do? I mean, Jesus prayed for us in John 17 to his father, please sanctify them with your truth. Make them more like me through your truth. Your word is truth. So if it's a prayer that Jesus prays for us, it is certainly one that God is going to delight to answer in our lives. So as we approach the text, even today, may we recognize that it's the Holy Spirit's work in our lives that will illuminate these truths to us. So let's jump in. Maybe uh, I can get a little interaction tonight, at least with some of the, the quote, easier questions, the ones you can just really rip right out of the text. Um, so maybe uh, a representative from the table or someone who wrote them down, who wants wants to, uh, to read off your who's? All right, who are the characters? Who wants to just raise your hand and just go for it so we don't have too many people? Sherry, who you got? Um, Jesus, John, Simon, Andrew, James, John, Zebedee, and Nerds. Beautiful. Anybody else get any more? Yeah. Yeah, we, we can infer from the text that there would be other surrounding people as well. Probably those that Jesus is proclaiming the gospel to as well. So, yeah, absolutely. How about the what's? Maybe being, I'm going to defer always to, to, to Jeff on the grammar side, but maybe like subject and verb. What kind of action are you seeing happening? Who did what? Fishermen were doing fishing things. Fishermen were doing fishing things. <laughs> fishermen things, absolutely. Yeah, they're fishy, yeah. All right, so, so we have the fishermen mending nets, absolutely, and certainly there on the sea. What else did you see? Jesus proclaiming. Jesus proclaiming the gospel, saying the gospel, preaching and proclaiming. People surrendering. We have the fishermen responding to Jesus' call in their life. John was arrested. John was arrested right at the beginning after John was arrested. And then Jesus came. Jesus proclaimed. What else did Jesus do? Verse 16. Where was he? What was he doing? Yeah, he was traveling. He was passing alongside. And then his eyes get engaged. What else did Jesus do? He was saying to them, follow me. And at first, we're, we're getting a glimpse of Mark saying he saw. 
He saw Simon and Andrew, and then Jesus said, follow me. And then he says, this is what I will do. I'll make you fishers of men. What was, again, um, specifically to, to Louise's point of people surrendering to Christ's call, Simon and Andrew, they left their nets and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus sees Two other men, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, what they were doing, the fishermen things, they were mending their nets, their livelihood depended on this. And then Jesus called them. And we have a little bit deeper glimpse of who they left to follow Jesus. They left their father. They left the hired servants in order to follow the call of Jesus Christ. So those are some of the actions. How about when? And where? Are there any um, geographical um, signposts for us to look for or chronological signposts that we can see here? By the Sea of Galilee. So again, handy with an inductive type of study is to have a map and at least be able to put um, uh, markers as to where this was happening. So yes, by the Sea of Galilee. After Jesus' temptation in the wilderness... Yes, so we have it in a chronological order. This is Jesus beginning his ministry following the testing in the wilderness. Anything else? After John's arrest. After John's arrest. No, ah, she stole your answer, Sherry, sorry. Yeah. Let me give a few notes here. Um, because when we look at um, the Gospels, what we're doing is we're, we're, we're reading four different eyewitness accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus. And sometimes there can even be some apparent contradictions that we want to make sure that we're able to navigate. So we have after John's arrest, and certainly would be helpful, this may be something to look at later, other Gospels that speak of John's arrest, why was he arrested, be something that if you're not familiar with that, certainly want to look at that. And in this narrative, it looks as if, and it was already mentioned, that the beginning of Jesus' ministry happens immediately after John's arrest. But if you were to go over to John chapter 3 and verse 22 to 26, it seems John places a long, longer time frame between the temptation in the wilderness and the beginning of Jesus' ministry, particularly in Galilee. And so what we want to do is act as if we're detectives and we're listening to these eyewitness accounts in order not to make sure that there's no differences, to, but to take those things and put them together as a cohesive story. So we want to make sure that Mark in his gospel is not denying a Judean ministry prior to his ministry here around the Sea of Galilee, but merely for sake for, for Mark's um, purposes through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Mark does not include any kind of Judean ministry. He jumps right to the Galilean ministry. But the way that he writes it doesn't mean that that couldn't have happened. Because um, it is interesting. He just says, now after. So anytime after John's arrest, Jesus begins this public ministry in Galilee. And so it seems as if Mark's real concern here is just to set the beginning of Jesus' ministry in Galilee in context after the arrest of John. And this is where you go back and say, okay, what do we look about, in, about John in the previous passages in Mark, earlier in the chapter? John was that Elijah figure in Malachi's prophecy. 
So that helps set the stage for Jesus in relation to that. The arrest of John, the in, in some senses, the removal of John out of the way, as if, well, the ministry that John was given seems to be done. He's now been arrested for calling out the Roman leader for his sin. And now Jesus steps in and begins his public ministry. A major marker in the outline structure of the book. And so he passes along the Sea of Galilee, and that's where much of the early action of this book takes place. We'll see that as we move forward. So that's some of the when and some of the why, or excuse me, some of the where. Let's jump into the why. Um, and this is where I'll probably do more talking than interaction. Number one, for sake of time, and also because I'm going to try to steer this into an application section as well. So why was Mark concerned with writing about the beginning of Jesus' ministry? Why was he concerned about writing about Jesus' call of his first disciples and setting it in context to how what we've already read? As we discussed last week, Jesus was the one that was going to break through the spiritual barriers in place. That was due to Adam's sin. And then as God's redemption story continued through the Old Testament, also barriers in place because of Israel's unfaithfulness, despite God's faithfulness to them. So Jesus, in his wilderness temptation, enters into Satan's domain. And why did he do that? A sinful man from Adam's fall on is completely incapable of upholding our end of the covenant that God has given us, blessing for obedience. Jesus needed to come and do what Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, the people of Israel, you and me, what we failed to do. Jesus had to come and do that for us. So identified, he identified with man by taking on flesh and being born of a virgin. He identified with man and with Adam by being sent out into the wilderness. And unlike Adam and Eve's failure through Satan's temptations, he would win victory. He identified with Israel by going out to John in the wilderness and being baptized as those who, from the people of Israel that were repenting. It was, a, again, that visible signal of their inner repentance. So he's identifying as the true Adam. The true Israelite who perfectly submits to the word of God and perfectly obeys his father's will. And after all of that, he is now beginning his public ministry in which he will remain perfectly obedient. He will remain perfectly faithful to the word of God. Now the stage is set. So all of that beginning with John proclaiming the way and the, the wilderness temptation is all a grand narrative where the stage is now set for Jesus to begin his public ministry. Things will now begin to be restored. We'll see him healing. We'll see him calling people to himself and then responding to his authority. He'll begin to take back what is rightfully his as he casts out demons and brings people to himself. He will continue to establish his identity, establish his authority. He'll proclaim the gospel. He'll proclaim the nature of the kingdom of God. So how does this passage then get us ready for that? How did it set the stage? 
Well, we always want to go back to some main statements. Remember when we looked at verse 1 of the book of Mark? The why in that passage was this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus. The one who's the son of God. So as Jesus continues and goes into his ministry, we connect those words, beginning, gospel, son of God, all those whys. How can we connect it to the why of this passage? Well, the beginning. I want to, Mark's framing this. How did the gospel of Jesus come? Remember, it's in contrast to the gospel of every ruler and emperor that came before him. Again, they all were saying, promising hope. There's going to be peace. We now have the ruler in place that we think is going to bring all these things, and they fail. And now Mark says, there's a new gospel coming, and it's not the gospel of an emperor, not a gospel of Nero or Caesar. It's the gospel of Jesus the Son of God. And what's the gospel? Why is this gospel different? And the Son of God, Jesus, is continuing to establish his identity and authority. And Mark wants to make sure that as he continues to write this narrative through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that we get these things. Okay, beginning, gospel, Son of God. Those are all important things. So, as we now look at the passage, how do we see these things fleshed out? First, the time is fulfilled. The proclamation of Jesus. He's saying this is what you were waiting for. Jesus will begin to put into motion all the things necessary for God's eternal kingdom to be brought into consummation. And we continue to find ourselves in that. I'm part of God's kingdom, but it's not quite here yet in the way that it needs to be. That already not yet tension but Jesus here is announcing to them and to us the time is now fulfilled. It's happening. The kingdom of God is come. It's at hand is what he says. The nature of God's kingdom, as we're going to find out, is not what they were expecting. He didn't come to overthrow the Romans, but to bring salvation to his people. It begins, as we're going to read here, in the calling of the first disciples in seemingly insignificant ways with seemingly insignificant people. But as he will say later, it's like a mustard seed. It's so small, but when it's fully flowered, it will grow. What else do we see here? We see the gospel being proclaimed, and we see a proper response to the gospel. Again, be thinking through these application questions for yourself as we go through this. The proper response to the gospel, as Jesus proclaims, is what? Repentance and faith. Repent and believe in this gospel. Believe in the good news of Jesus is the Son of God. He can bring peace. He can bring peace within the, the tumultuous circumstances that are surrounding their lives and our lives. Again, because he's no emperor. He's no Nero. He's the King of Kings. He's Jesus, the Son of God. We get a clearer picture of the kingdom and his gospel as we move forward as in this study. We also see another response to the gospel and the call of Jesus through these fishermen. The proper response to Jesus' call is one of radical discipleship. As we see here, following Jesus puts demands on you. It puts demands on your relationship to your family. 
It puts demands on your relationship to your work, your relationship to money, to your time, to your other relationships. So responding to Jesus' call today is the same thing. He calls us to radical discipleship. And what was the main purpose that he stated for these fishermen, for these disciples? Why was he calling them out? You're no longer to be fishers of fish in the sea, but you're going to be fishers of men. The word we'd use would be evangelism. Jesus calls these men to follow him so that they can become fishers of man. They will evangelize. They will spread the gospel. C.H. Spurgeon puts it this way. Typically, we we, we see fishing in our culture as, um, you know, unless you're a sea fisherman or deep sea fisherman, as, you know, the rod and the line and the bobber, and you want to put something really tantalizing on the hook, and you're you're, you're trying to reel that fish in and get them to see it. But as we see here, they're mending nets. It's a different style of fishing. And C.H. Spurgeon says this, Our business is not to entice a fish to swallow the bait, but to cast the net all around us and lift sinners out of the element in which they lie and into the boat where Christ is. So that would certainly fit probably their understanding of fishing. So I think that's that's a helpful picture that Spurgeon lays out for us. A couple more points here. Jesus' plan to further the gospel, its reach not only to his people, to Israel, but to all nations, includes others. How interesting, right after Jesus begins his public ministry, he begins to surround himself with others to help fulfill his mission. And these guys are not the worldly wise. They're not influential figures and the religious elite, but they're fishermen. And they weren't looking for him, were they? (laughs) Obviously, God was at work in their hearts to allow them to respond, but who pursued who? What do we see about the heart of Jesus? He goes to where they are, and he calls them, pursues them in love. It's a beautiful reflection, not only of Jesus Christ, but certainly of God the Father, of why he sent his Son to make many sons his glory. He desires for men to return back to him. He calls them to leave what they were finding their identity in, their fishing, their vocation. And he says, now your, your life, a true, fulfilling, dignified life, is not going to be signified by how many fish you catch a day, but following Jesus in obedience. In other words, he's calling men back to do what he created them to do in the first place. And so one of the main themes in Mark's gospel as we go through is going to be this of discipleship. What does it mean to follow Jesus? And this begins that narrative. So maybe you're able to get a summary sentence. Let me give you mine and then I'll close this in prayer and we'll go. Following Jesus' victory over Satan in the wilderness, Jesus begins to proclaim that God's kingdom has come and that entrance into that kingdom is through faith and repentance. And I, I, I cheated. I've got one more. <laughs> Jesus' unique authority over his disciples profoundly reshapes their identity and their life's mission.
And again, let me encourage you to continue this. Ask those application questions. Pray through those. Find someone at your table or someone in the room to, to continue just to share how God is working in your life. Let me pray and we'll close. Father, we are grateful for the work of Jesus and sending your son for us. May we represent true disciples of Christ, that we would be marked with a radical commitment to following Jesus and to casting the nets of the gospel far and wide, pointing people to Christ. Father, thank you that Jesus has saved us. Our identity has been reshaped and reformed. Our mission has been reformed and reshaped. And Father, if we are off of that, would you show that to us through the work of your word in our lives as the Spirit reveals it? May we repent and confess of maybe worldly allurements that have caught our eyes and we're following a different path than what you've laid out for us. And Father, may we do what you have called us and saved us to do to proclaim the excellencies of your name. And it's in your son, Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.